Welcome to our podcast, Bad, it's all about crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir, and each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. Welcome to the Bad All About Crime podcast, brought to you by the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. My name is Sue Turnbull. I'm chair of Bad Sydney and also Professor of Communication and Media at the University of Wollongong, and crime fiction reviewer and judge. And today I'm delighted to bring you another special presentation from the 2021 Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. This is a recording of my conversation session with 2021 Ned Kelly Award winner Gary Disher, entitled The Way It Is Now. I've had the pleasure of talking to Gary many times over the years about his work, In particular, the series featuring a criminal called Wyatt, the Chalice and Destry series set on the Mornington Peninsula, and most recently his series featuring Constable Paul Hirschhausen, set in the region of South Australia, where Gary himself grew up, not forgetting, of course, his many standalone crime books. In this conversation, Gary reflects on his career, his literary influences, the importance of character and place, and also the question that drives the narrative. Not forgetting, of course, our discussion of rural noir and the patterns that are beginning to emerge in this very Australian take on the contemporary crime novel. So I do hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Welcome, everybody, to Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation as the traditional owners of this land and pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm Sue Turnbull. It is my very, very great pleasure to introduce Gary Disher to you here today. Um, We're thrilled to have him with us. We had him sort of with us in this room last year, but the internet was unstable. The sound wasn't terribly good. It was all a bit frustrating, but the quality of what Gary was saying was wonderful. We just couldn't hear it terribly well. So You've got the chance to make that all better this time around, Gary. And I suspect I suspect everyone in this room will have read a Gary Disher. How many have read the most recent one? Yep, a few of those. It Hands would up. make a thoughtful Christmas present. A I just thoughtful Christmas present. What about the Wyatt series? Hands up if you've read Wyatt. Fabulous. Hands up if you're a fan of Hirsch. They're here too. The Mornington Peninsula series. Yep, yep, yep. I think we've got them covered. What about the standalones? Because this is a standalone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've got standalones here too. So, Gary, it's been an extraordinary career. You've won so many awards and so many prizes, and you're huge in Germany. I don't know if you know that, but... Gary is... You've you've won some sort of German prize too, haven't you? Yeah, I've won four... German Best Novel Awards. <laughs> I'm <Why>? still bewildered. <laughs> what do you think is it? What is it about the the German audience that that have picked up on on you? I don't know about me, but nationally, they're very keen readers, uh, keen book buyers, and there's no sort of cultural cringe involved. They're very open to um, literature from overseas. Uh, I suppose there's. Perhaps the exotic appeal too, um, but 
I would think that the, the exotic Australian setting wouldn't travel unless there were international uh, universal themes, I'm trying to say, because all crime novels about love and hate and betrayal, and uh, they, are, they, they travel everywhere. So, but for whatever reason, they, they like my books. <laughs> Which is great. And then, of course, there's, as you said, the exotic setting. And we'll be talking about setting quite a lot later on. But I did say that we would acknowledge that initially you were going to be talking to Tony Birch. And I wondered if you'd like to tell us what, because you've read his short stories, his most recent short story collection. And I was really intrigued about the possibilities of that conversation between um, someone who is identified as an Indigenous literary author and Gary, who comes from a, a, a very different um, section of the literary world. Um, and we'll talk about that. But well, I would like to have asked Tony a couple of things. One is... Uh... Hemingway's iceberg analogy. I don't know if you know it, but Ernest Hemingway said that the movement of a short story is like an iceberg, that there's only one-tenth showing above the surface and nine-tenths under the surface, but still an essential part of the whole. And I was reminded of that when I read his the short story collection, that on the surface, just some very simple things are happening, simple conversations or simple interactions about, about people, but under underneath you have a sense of... Uh, of unspoken heartache for whatever or or whatever else it might be. So I was struck by that in those stories. And I'd like to, to have talked to him about um, dirty realism. Dirty realism has probably had its day, but it was very influential when I started writing short fiction. Uh, an American movement pop popularised, I suppose, by Raymond Carver, Richard Ford, Bobby Ann Mason, uh, Tobias Wolfe and some of those people whose subject matter was ordinary people, but probably working class, struggling lower middle class, trying to, um, trying to better themselves, trying to make um, sense of a baffling situation they found themselves in, trying to battle through. And Tony's stories are, are a bit like that. Mm. Um, but Dirty Realism had a bit of a bad name in Australia because it was mistaken for inner suburban group household grunge drug-taking fiction, but it wasn't that at all. Mm. Um, someone used the dirty realism as a label, which is perhaps an unfortunate label, but it's about ordinary people struggling to make sense of their lives and Tony's stories like that. And I think perhaps it appeals to me too because a lot of the characters I write about are ordinary people who've stuffed up in some way. I'm not writing about super villain villains, uh, ever. Um, mm. I'm just writing about people who are struggling and often they get it wrong and the repercussions of that. And, and actually, that there are two questions that come out of that for me, which is, does the iceberg analogy apply to your books as well? I think it does. I, I started my career as a short story writer. I probably published 40-odd short stories in literary magazines before I wrote my first novel. And um, implication and suggestion are the big strengths of short short stories. And I, I think I still use those techniques in the longer works, the novels, that, that there are things going on, under, on underneath the surface that are hinted at by body language, by, language, by uh, conversation and so on. And we should acknowledge here that, that um, 
you said, you know, you wrote short stories and you were writing literary fiction at one stage. And there's this whole thing about the what is literary fiction as opposed to crime fiction and the blurry line between the two. And I've got a quote from you from one of your essays, which is a bit provocative, which says, I think crime novels can tell us more about human frailty and the world we live in than literary novels. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I wish I could go back and burn everything I've said in the past. But, uh, but, but I think there's a lot of truth. Uh, it's assumed, I think, by too many people that crime fiction is junk fiction. It, we love to take it to their holiday house in summer and we leave it behind in the holiday house because it doesn't really have any value apart from that, apart from um, distracting us for uh, a few hours when we're on holiday. But I think good crime fiction does tell us about the world we live in. Um, it explores prevailing social tensions. Uh, it's about character and character interaction. Um, it's assumed that it's if it's crime fiction, it's poorly written, but that's not the truth, as we know with, with Peter Temple, who won the Miles Franklin, the prim, premier literary award in Australia mm. with, with his crime novel. Was it? It was truth. truth. It, was truth. truth. it should have been The Broken Shore, yeah. but it was truth. Yeah. So, um, so I would defend crime fiction on, on many, many levels. Mm. Um, and I think it's why it's so popular. It's not because it's got car chases in it, Mm. Uh, or, or a puzzle about who, who bumped off the victim. It's about human interaction. It's about, at one level, there's uh, an element of there but for the God of, grace of God go I. Mm. Um, we see people who have stuffed up their lives um, for believable reasons that we, that we can identify with. And there's been a big shift in crime fiction too from the early days of Agatha Christie and those hard-boiled uh, Los Angeles private eye novels, where the main character was a cipher, really. Uh, it's been said that Agatha Christie's Miss Marple was a super reasoning machine. She had no social context. But uh, with um, Sarah Paretsky and other writers like her in the 80s and 90s, suddenly we had crime main characters who were like us. Uh, crucially, they're not us because they uh, feared... Uh, they tread where we, where we fear to tread, but um, they had messy love lives. They had stale cheese in the fridge. Uh, they were concerned about the their welfare of their aged parents and so on. So that was a big shift in, in crime fiction, I, I think. And that's another reason why, why it's appealing, because we can relate to the characters and what's going on. And um, we, were, we were just having a little chat before we started here um, because I have an ongoing kind of vendetta with the um, Melbourne, and he writes for the Australian, um, Peter Craven, who only ever refers to um, crime fiction as quality trash. <laughs> and I, I have just, I've just had so many conversations with him and debates with him in my head about that whole... Uh, thing that he's, it's, he, he's devoted to the classics and he cannot see that we're actually producing contemporary classics, that, that The Broken Shore is a contemporary yeah. classic and that, um, you know, many of your books, I think, would qualify. It, it, um, Bitter Wash Road is, is one of my absolute favourites of yours, oh, as a, which was the first of the Hirsch series, I think, of capturing a particular moment in time. Um, let's 
Let's come to the latest book because it, it's actually a return to the Mornington Peninsula. And I, I want to ask you a question, Gary. Where's home for you? Um, it's near a little town called Balnaring on the Mornington Peninsula, uh, less than an hour and a half from the city, depending on traffic. Um, it's on the side of the peninsula that's not so busy in summer. The Port Sea, Sorrento, uh, Mount Martha, Mount Eliza side of the peninsula, the bay suburbs are to be avoided in summer. But I'm on the other side, the Western Port side, which is very quiet and low-key in summer. Mm. Uh, I live on a dirt road about uh, seven or eight minutes drive from the beach, and I walk on the beach every day. And I had to, I had to walk on the beach with new eyes when I wrote this book because I took the beach. Well, I'd, I've never taken the beach for granted. It's different every day. But I realised I wasn't seeing things. And so when I started this book, I um, walked with, with, with uh, fresher eyes, I suppose. I, I don't often do this. Do you think you could do it? Could you read the first paragraph of that chapter? Just, I just about the beach. So it's Christmas morning. Charlie was on the beach at 6.15. So was everyone else, the older locals anyway, many of whom he hadn't seen since he was a kid. All were carrying themselves with a kind of benign, slow-moving grace as they blessed the day and each other. The murmurs and the stillness, the hazy colours along the horizon and the perfect, perfect glass-like water. Charlie hated to breach it, so he didn't go in, just stood there on the sand with his towel. The beach as a cathedral, he thought. Morning prayers and benedictions. Usually the beach was implicit with loss. Lost coins, lost jewellery, lost virginity, lost lives. Sandcastles, footprints and hopscotch ladders lost to the clawing tidewater. That was just such a beautiful and poignant um, evocation of, of the beach and, and beach culture. So you... This is a standalone and you return to the Mornington Peninsula after being with Hirsch in South Australia for a period of time, which is also home too, isn't it? Yes, it's wheat and wool country, halfway between Adelaide and the Flinders Ranges. It's where I grew up and where I still have family. But you decided to come back to the Mornington Peninsula. Yeah. Well, um, my publisher barely wanted another Hirsch straight away after, <laughs> after consolation, but I had to resist him. Uh, lovely bloke, but I had to resist him. Um, I, I needed a break from Hirsch. Um, I often do with books. I'd like to, I like to push up my own boundaries, but I like to try different things from year to year too. So uh, I wanted to. I didn't want to write another big city novel, like perhaps um, Under the Cold Bright Lights, which is set in Melbourne. So I thought, for various reasons, I, want, I wrote about my second home, the Mornington Peninsula, the beach suburbs. So for those who haven't read the book, could you just give us a little synopsis of, the, of, of what engages you? you? You've written somewhere else that every book, um, every mystery begins with a question or every story begins with a question. What's the question here? Well, I suppose it's a quest novel in the sense that the main character, Charlie DeRaven, uh, he's a policeman in the sex crimes unit but he's been suspended because he got into a barney with his inspector and pushed him over, the, over a desk. <laughs> so he's on suspension. His marriage is broken up and he's gone back to the little shack at the beach where he grew up. Um, and his father has since left there, but it's still in the family. 
and he's got no he's got time on his hands now and he wants to solve the mystery of his mother's disappearance 20 years ago at the same time a little boy who's on who'd been bullied at school camp had run away from the camp and is also missing so no bodies just two two missing people coincidentally at the same at, at that time and so he sets out as a quest mm. to to work out who what might have happened to his mother because for 20 years his father has been the chief suspect everyone thinks that his mother was murdered and murdered by his father and he's keen to uh, prove his innocence mm. i got the, the idea from a, a i get a lot of ideas from newspapers i'm not interested ever in writing about the the crime that the newspaper article was about i used it as a springboard but there was a story a few years ago in melbourne of an elderly man taken to trial for the murder of his wife 20 years earlier and there was a body and all the rest of it but not enough evidence at the time and apparently for 20 years his only child a son firmly believed he did it but so i was using a newspaper article but also writers i think asked the question what if what if there were two brothers one of them thinks dad's innocent and the other one thinks dad's guilty so um, that gave me the question that drove, drives the book what happened to mum and how will how will he discover it and will he discover it what the truth is so had you got this worked out as a strategy and a structure and a plot before you started yeah so some of my writer colleagues say they don't plan they just start with a scene or a character or whatever and write to see what happens but uh, I used to do that I think early in my writing career with the literary so-called literary short stories and a couple of early novels um, I like a quote from the Irish writer Sean O'Fallon he said there need to be three elements present at the start for the writer and the reader a character a situation and a promise and uh, that's how I wrote my early stories and novels, just just to see a voyage of discovery to see what would mm. happen. And I tried that with the first crime novel, a Wyatt novel, and it was a, a dismal failure. I had I had my character written into a corner, and I didn't know how to get him out of it. I was relying on coincidence, um, so I, I realised I needed to stay a step ahead of the stay a step ahead of the reader. Mm. I needed to plan. So now I'm a planner. I spent several weeks planning a crime novel, mm -hmm. starting with the overall arch of the story and then um, refining it, and they will, the, they will be the stages, and then refining it further, and they will be the chapters. That, that's how I, I, I write them. So you've actually, before you start, you've got a pretty good idea yeah. of how it's going to proceed and unfold, because you've got yeah. two timeframes here that you're, you're also dealing with. Yeah, uh, yeah, I have the whole book in my head before I start, basically. Um, but, yeah, it's written on two time frames so that the early couple of chapters or five or six short chapters are set 20 years ago when Charlie's mother disappears and the little boy disappears from camp. Mm. Um, and then we jump forward 20 years. Charlie's older and wiser. And part of, part of the tension for Charlie is that he can't, work as a cop now he's on suspension mm. he wants to investigate but he can't use the things the techniques that uh, mm. um, an ordinary cop or private detective can use because uh, he's got no power anymore so just i'm interested in uh, 
in conflict for characters? What what's holding them back? What's restricting them? It's it's also interesting too. Is it, and we were talking to Sarah Bailey um, this morning, and she was talking about writing something in two thousand and five when there weren't any platforms and there weren't this that and the other. There's a whole way in which policing has changed as a result of technology, and it's it's whether you're on top of that or whether you go back in time to avoid it. <laughs> it's a it's a it is a bit of a fraught issue for me uh, the, the role of technology in policing, uh, particularly with with the Wyatt novels, because Wyatt, if you don't know the Wyatt novels, these are crime from the inside novels. They're caper mm-hmm. novels. The main character is a cop, is a, not a cop, he's a, a crook. <laughs> a crook. He, he robs banks and payroll bands. And um, it's a struggle for me as a writer in, say, 2021. How do I have Wyatt pulling off a high-tech robbery uh, when, you know, I need to spend several years researching how this high-tech would work yes. to be able to write it into the novel. So I think if I write another novel, another Wyatt novel, it'll have to be something, something simple that he steals. And I, I, I met that t- challenge with the one that's set in Noosa. He just breaks into a house and steals a painting, but I can't see him robbing a bank anymore. <laughs> <It's> too <high laughs> tech. There's too many security cameras. He'd have yeah. to take those out first. It gets very complicated. Wyatt, of course... Um, we've had quite a few conversations over the years and I remember talking about Wyatt because he was inspired by the crime novels of Donald Westlake. Am I- That's right, yeah. yeah. Richard Stark, as he was called, uh, his writing name for the for the Parker novels. Yeah. So was that the inspiration for you to start writing crime, the, the, the desire yeah. to emulate a particular style or a particular... Uh, not to write approach? crime per se, no. I, I knew I'd... I knew I always wanted to write crime because I loved reading it so much. Uh-huh. But at the time, I was very, very fond of the Parker novels. There, I think there are about 15 of them. Uh, and Parker is a very hard-boiled, yeah, he robs banks of payroll veins or coin collections from coin shows or whatever it might be. So. And the Wyatt books are morally very ambiguous, aren't they? Because yeah. you're in this situation where you, you've got to get, your reader has to be on side with Wyatt, but Wyatt's, a crook. So, how can yeah. how do you position the reader in relation to a character like that? Uh, yeah, I do. I do get letters from readers saying I don't approve of Wyatt, but I want him to win. <laughs> so, I think I think the books are tapping into that uh, desire in us to pull the perfect crime. We've all, you know, there's always someone we've wanted to bump off because they've done us wrong, or we'd like to per- pull the perfect robbery. We don't, of course. Uh, but I think these books tap into that desire. Mm. And, but also at one level, Wyatt has to be a decent character. He, he'll kill people if they've double-crossed him. He's a killer. Uh, he's a very meticulous, cold, calculating planner of his robberies. But, um, you know, he's got certain standards. He's not a thrill killer. Mm. Uh, he won't deal with drugs, which makes these books... Uh, totally implausible because that's where the big money is. Mm. Um, so, so that was important to me too. Mm. But a rule of thumb for writing fiction is that you get to know your characters very well before you start to write. Um, but I don't with Wyatt. He's a cipher. I have much, much more fun as a writer with the minor characters because mm. uh, they're fuckwits, a lot of them, and I have a great deal of fun with them. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, 
<laughs> but Wyatt, we don't learn much about him. If, if I were to reveal that Wyatt um, had a bully as a father, that he grew up in a broken home, suddenly Wyatt is vulnerable mm. and Wyatt's not Wyatt anymore. So we never, ever learn much about him. There might be little, little touches. For example, in one of the books, I can't remember which one it is now, um, a, a job goes wrong and a, a female accomplice is shot in the head. Uh, not fatally, but she's in a bit of a bad way. And Wyatt, being Wyatt, isn't uh, looking after her and nursing her uh, because she's injured necessarily. It's because if he leaves her behind, the police will grab her and learn about the case. But at the same time, he has got this injured woman with him and they hold it, hold up in a, in a flat and uh, she goes to have a shower, wash her hair or something, and he senses that she's struggling because, um, because of, of the, she's been shot in the head, a grazing blow. So he goes in and helps her wash her hair. So, but that's about as much as we learn about the soft side of Wyatt. But it's, it's such a compelling scene. I do remember that scene and you think, oh God, he's human too. I think I love him. You know, we kind of like the bad guys, you know, because yeah. he, he is honourable in a way. Yeah. You know, he's, 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 he's not a fuckwit and he's not dishonourable, but his, it's an honour among thieves, right? Yeah. Completely. So Chalice and Destry, it was Hal Chalice who came first, wasn't it, the, in the series that originally were on the Mornington Peninsula? Right, yeah. So that was a shift into a police procedural. And the Dragon Man was the first one. That's right, yeah. That was, I'm thinking it was mid-90s, and it was around the time that we were getting a lot of serial killer. It, that yeah. was the, vi the wave that was coming through then. Yeah. Um, the, the, the peninsula setting for the Chalice novels, Chalice and Destry novels, was accidental in the sense that I just moved down to the Mornington Peninsula, 1992 it was, and I thought I, I wanted a shift from Wyatt. I'd written six in six years, so I wanted to a shift. So I wanted to write police procedurals. And I was influenced by, because uh, I think we all we writers mm. build on a tradition. I was interested in the uh, Inspector Resnick novels of John Harvey set in Nottingham. So I was interested in, because he has an ensemble cast of characters, we see the public and private lives of the cops, the major and minor crimes are investigating. It's not a, not, Nottingham is a city, but it's not a major me metropolis. Mm. But, it's, I, but I thought, well, I'd like to write th his sorts of books. Mm. And I thought I'd write about Melbourne, which I only recently left. But I went, went into the milk bar at the little town of Hastings on the west port side of the peninsula uh, one day to buy lunch and the three or four women were ahead of me in the line and women were serving. And they were all talking about having to take their daughters to netball practice by car now, not daring to let them catch the bus because uh, a serial killer operating in Frankston hadn't been caught yet. He'd raped and murdered three young women who were waiting at bus stops, etc. And I had this in incredible sense of community fear, mm. of, uh, of community anxiety, of, of how this crime has affected the, the lives of these, uh, these mothers and their daughters, and presumably the fathers too. But uh, mm. So I realised then that's, that's where I wanted to set it. 
Yeah. And and that setting, I mean, having spent time in the Mornington Peninsula, what I always loved was trying to work out where Gary Disher's fictional town actually was, because you made Hastings Waterloo. Yeah. And, and even in this new book, I'm working out, where are we now? Where's the real place? You know? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the bad guy, oh, no, I didn't tell you who the bad guy is. <laughs> But can't do it, that. It's, it, it refers to an actual public position. So I knew that I could, couldn't call it Balnarring Beach, um, Merrick's Beach and Summer's Beach. So I've fictionalised the names of the towns. And I do that. One reason I, why I chose to call Hastings Waterloo in the, in the books is because for fi fictional reasons, I might need to create a, a building like a hospital mm. or an event that doesn't happen in the real Hastings and it, it would confuse readers. So yeah. I fictionalise where necessary for plot purposes the rest of the time on name actual towns like Mornington. Yeah. But then did you feel when you, you know, there's there's quite a lot of the um, Talus and, and Death Street, but did you feel that that series had run its course when you when you you stopped and you moved somewhere else? I mean, would you write another one of those or, have, or do you feel as though you've, you've done with those characters? I think there's probably one more Peninsula novel or one more Wyatt in me. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I'd written uh, several of them and, again, wanted a change. Mm. And coincidentally, Michael Haywood, my publisher, uh, urged me to think about a standalone. And that was Bitter Wash Road, which turns out to be the first of a series. But <laughs> when I wrote it, it was intended to be a standalone. Yeah. Um, and I'm writing about the area where I grew up uh, even though I left there basically when I was 18 or 19 to go to Adelaide University, um, it still exerts a pull on my imagination. And uh, every few books over the years, I've gone back there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you've also written, and I, here, here we might, another little bit of a um, confession and the way in which our paths cross. Um, Gary undertook a PhD and wrote a rather fine thesis on rural noir. I may say, because I marked it. <laughs> and his, um, the novel that he submitted was, consul was Peace, wasn't it? It was Peace. It yeah. was Peace. So, you know, like I was going to fail it. I mean, really. But you wrote this wonderful um, essay on rural noir. And I wonder if you'd just like to rehearse a few of the arguments that you made there, because, you know, the term outback noir has now been used in and a whole slew of Australian novels not set in cities have kind of been labelled um, there. And, and you kind of showed that there was a, a continuity and a history of this kind of representation in Australian crime. So give, yeah, give, give, the, give them the three-minute thesis. Well, the, the, the thesis is about recent, uh, several recent uh, Australian crime novels that might be termed rural, rural or outback noir, a, a term coined by a, a journalist who was writing about the phenomenon of uh, um, Chris Hammer's... Uh, Scrublands. Scrublands, yeah, and Shane Harper's The Dry, mm. uh, because they were an immense bestsellers in Australia and overseas, and she, she saw it as a phenomenon. And uh, I... I would, like, I would like to argue that my book, Bitter Wash Road, came before both of those books, so that there had been a bit of a tradition already. Uh, there's, there's always been rural crime fiction. But what struck me about um, 
Peter Temple's, some couple of Peter Temple's books, my book, Bitter Wash Road, uh, Jock Sarong's novel, um, uh, Quota, uh, set in a fishing village, uh, and a couple of others like that, uh, is that the main character is an outsider, uh, a, a total outsider like Hirsch, who's a, a city boy who's, uh, through some indiscretion, has been busted down to uniform and sent to a little one-officer police station in the bush, so he's a real fish out of water, or Chris Hammer's Scrublands, where the main character is a journalist, sent to an outback New South Wales town in, the, in midsummer. Uh, Jane Harper's main character, Falk, is not a, not a total outsider, but he hasn't lived there for 20 years. So he's, in a sense, coming back as an outsider. So these characters have to... There's a, there's a twin elements of tension or suspense or uh, stress for them. They have to learn about the place in order to solve the crimes as they also need to learn about the crimes. So mm. it gives a, a very useful a layer of tension in these books, I think, the fact that the main characters are outsiders. And some might only stay a very short time. Hirsch has been there for two or three years now. I'm currently writing the fourth Hirsch. Um, also, these characters have a circumscribed home. If we think about um, uh, Michael Connolly's Bosch, he lives in a house up in the, in the California, in the hills above Los Angeles. He's been there in every book. That's where he lives. It's, he's firmly rooted to that place. He's firmly rooted to the city because he grew up there and he's firmly rooted to his home. But the characters like Hirsch, um, who lives in three pokey rooms at the back of a little house on the highway, which in the front room of which is the police station, or Chris Hammer's character who stays in a motel, or Jane Harper's character who stays in, in a, a room above the bar of the, of the, of the local pub, uh, they have a circumscribed home. Mm. I think one, one theme of fiction, and I think I return to it a lot in my books, is uh, the search for a true home, a character trying to fit in somewhere. And the true home could be a place, or it could be the arms of a loved one, or it could be just simple peace of mind. So I think, uh, I think a lot of my books are about that, someone who doesn't quite fit in but wants to. But wants to. And, and you've got that interesting um, situation which of being an insider, let's say that we're talking about um, the Hirsch novels, you, you know, was it Borough, the town that is yes, Borough? Yeah. You know this place intimately, but then you're coming back to it after a long time. So you do see it in a little bit, that outsider, you know, that return yeah. when you, it's that coming back to something and seeing it for what it was. Yeah, I've, I have often thought over the years, since the first Hirsch novel, what, what sort of book would I have written if I lived there all yeah. this time and had never moved away? Uh, but, yeah, it, like the place exerts a pull on my imagination. I can see it and I can smell it. Uh, but each time I do go back, I'm seeing fresh things. Yeah. I've seen the, sh the changes over the years. So another fourth Hirsch is on the yeah. way? Yeah. Okay. Now, I came across, um, I want to talk to Gary about his writing because we know you walk on the beach every day. Do you do it first thing in the morning or middle of the day? Middle of the day, yeah. Okay. So middle of the day. So you write in the morning. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that it's blue biro handwriting on a full scrap yeah. legal pad? Yeah, yeah. 
there's a manuscript. Well, actually, it's the page proofs of uh, this new novel. But uh, my notes for today's session are in blue biro on this on the back of it. So <laughs> I recycle. So I write. I can't think through the keyboard very well. Uh, I can I can walk. I can write very quickly longhand. I can do asterisks and notes to myself and arrows and little reminders on another sheet of paper of stuff to look up. Um, I often have my mobile phone next to me so I can Google stuff quickly. But um, given that uh, Telstra owns all the infrastructure and given that we had a big storm a month ago, I've had no internet for three or four weeks. So, so I've amassed all these questions when I get the internet back. <laughs> so just as well you're here then, you know, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. When we weren't trying to catch you on Zoom in, um, in Balnaring. Oh, so, all right, so morning, blue biro, handwriting, yeah. walk on the beach, and then you come back and then you type uh, it up. Uh, not, no, not always. Sometimes I let a few days go by. Right. Uh, but if I do type it up, it's in effect the second draft because I'm, I'm rewriting as I go along through typing. Right. right. So how long would it take you from, from woe to go to do, uh, thinking uh, about the Hirsch now, the new one? The new one, I started probably two months ago and I probably finish in May and submit it and then I'll get a reader's report from the, my editor and there'll, there'll be some rewriting to do. Yeah. Uh, it seems to be going well at the moment, but some of my books have been like getting blood from a stone. Um, it's a struggle all the way along. Only a couple of times have I had a book that just sings on the page. Uh, the second Wyatt novel, Pay Dirt, I wrote in six weeks. Mm. Um, usually it's several months. Some of the some books, uh, my so-called literary novel, The Sunken Road, took me about 15 years. Um, I, I struggle with that for a long time. You know, it actually, Gary, it's really reassuring. I really like hearing that it's a struggle to write because I think, um, you know, you sort of assume when you read something that reads so beautifully and so eloquently and, um, and sparingly, um, and you think, oh, God, that must have just been such a dream to write. But it's an actual struggle to get it back to that, that bareness, yeah. as it were. Yeah, I like a quote from... Uh, an American poet, he said, this morning I put the hyphen in hellhound. This afternoon I took it out. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're ready to, to take some questions from the audience or some from um, chat if there's any coming through. It looks like we've got one on the chat already. Wow, that's terrific. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so maybe you've covered this already, but the question came through before your, your discussion. So we'll say thank you to the Zoom questionnaire, which was how long does it take you to write a book? And the answer is six weeks or a year or 15 years. How often do you revise the first draft? Uh, yeah, so there are two main drafts, the, the handwritten one and the, the one I type, and then I print it out and a lot of the editing then will be fiddly stuff. Yeah. Uh, every now and again, though, there'll be a major, I might make a ma major structural change. But usually by the time my editor gets it, and it might be, that'll be perhaps by the fourth or fifth draft, um, by the time my editor gets it, it doesn't need a, an enormous amount of work. Most of her editing is getting me to tighten up sentences or to flesh out a scene, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it's important to me to be 
uh, as perfect as I can make it before I submit it. Yeah. I want to ask you a question because um, I, I was fortunate enough to have a discussion with um, an interview with Don Winslow um, last year. I think it might have been last year. And he talked about the look of the words on the page, that he actually, if he sees a page where there's not enough white space, <laughs> he thinks, okay, I've got I to cut that. So there's actually something about the look on the page. Oh, okay. Does that affect yeah. you at all? No, but I understand it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I do too. Got a question in the front. The question is about the um, Charles renovating the de Havilland dragon in, in, in the Peninsula books. And is that an autobiographical moment? Okay. Uh, only in the sense that I loved making model planes when I was a kid. <laughs> and when I moved down to the Peninsula, a, near, a nearby town, Tyab, has a little airfield. And it has a, a, not an annual air show, but every two or three years they'll have an air show. And often it's um, vintage aircraft that will be on show. And I saw a de Havilland Rapide or Rapide, I'm not sure how they pronounced it back then. And I thought, what a lovely looking old plane. And I could see Hal Chalice renovating it, restoring it, because that was happening in some of the hangars around this mm. airfield, old planes being restored. Um, that's where that came from. Lovely. Okay, we've got another one at the back. So the question is, does, does Gary share his drafts? And the answer is... No. <laughs> I, a, a couple of times I've shown uh, the final draft before it goes to the publisher to a couple of, couple of friends over the years, but generally not. I would only ever show a draft to someone whose opinion I trusted and valued. Yeah. I wouldn't show it to my mum, for example. Well, <laughs> You, you know, don't show it to a loved one who's going to automatically praise it. You want someone who will give you good, hard feedback. Sorry. Yeah, my son should listen to that. I get wrong when I give him good, hard feedback. You see, my mother. <laughs> okay. What was the biggest challenge to change from writing short stories to writing novels? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, my impulse to write novels came out of the fact that I couldn't afford to write short stories. <laughs> um, I might spend several weeks on a short story, get it, send it off to a magazine. It might get published. I might get a check for $100, or I might just simply get a free copy of the magazine. And I couldn't exist for very long as a writer doing that. So that's... Uh, and I suppose I was guilty of that, that feeling of new writers that the pinnacle is, is the novel. I don't think that anymore. I think the pinnacle of uh, fiction writing is the short story. That's the ultimate to me. Mm. is a perfect short story. If you read anything by Alice Munro, for example, wonderful short stories, or William Trevor, or any of those people. Uh, as it so happened, when I started writing Steal Away, which is my first novel, it was published by uh, HarperCollins, uh, Angus and Robertson, it was called back then, which is now a book chain, but it was a publisher. Uh, I had been reading contemporary American fiction, and a lot of the a lot of their novels, well, the few that I read back then, were little episodic, little fragmentary novels built around fragments. Mm. Uh, there's a, a, an American writer called Evan. I think it's Evan Connell. He wrote two novels called Mister Bridge and Mrs Bridge. Uh, 
And they're like little snippets, little scenes. Some might be two pages long. Some might only be a sentence long or a paragraph line long. They were like little stories, really. So in a sense, I was writing short stories, moving from then to writing a novel that was, in fact, a lot of little short stories mm-hmm. uh, or little scenes, little snippets, um, before I wrote a so-called proper novel. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, a proper novel. Um, Okay, we've got another question that came through the Zoom. This is an interesting one, Gary. How do you form the female characters? <laughs> um, um, I don't know. It's, it's, I'll have to say that I don't have many male friends. <laughs> I feel uncomfortable in the company of men often. Uh, most of my friends are women and I like their company. I like listening to them. Um, when I wrote The Sunken Road, which is also set in the wheat and wool country of the, of the mid-north of South Australia, it's not a crime novel, it's a literary novel, I, uh, I wanted to do what Alice Munro does in Canada. She writes about small town, small farm life in southern Ontario. And I thought I wanted to do that, uh, but in a novel. And my main character was going to be a farmer. And I wanted to tell his life story. But he, to use that horrible expression, he didn't speak to me. I couldn't hear him. I used to love going home to the farm. I still call it home, actually. I used to love going home to the farm and doing farm work with my father, for example, checking that the sheep troughs had water in them or fixing a broken fence or whatever it might be. But what I really loved was sitting around the kitchen table with my mother and my aunt and my sister listening to the local gossip. <laughs> so the, the lives of women, uh, I, I realised then I wanted to write about her, that woman. So the novel is structured episodically or not, no, fragmentary mm-hmm. way as well. It's, uh, I tell her life story from childhood to old age over and over again in each little thematic mm-hmm. section. So it's a de- quite a departure from me. Most fiction is linear in structure. Time is chronological, but I tried something different with that. Maybe this is why I like your male characters so much. They 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 they're not overtly masculine. <laughs> is it possible? Could I hit on something there? How do you understand how the cops work? Well, I I should say that some of it I simply make up. <laughs> uh, for example, Inspector Chalice. Realistically, he wouldn't be a, an inspector in a, in a small regional police station. He'd, he'd, be, he'd be a senior sergeant probably. Uh, but having said that, uh, the Hirsch novels, I was drawing on my brother. My brother was a policeman. He's retired now, but he was a country cop. He tried to work on the farm with my father, but they had a great personality clash. So um, he became a cop and he worked in... Uh, outback towns, uh, you know, far distant outback, dusty towns. So he's terrific to to pick his brains. Uh, When I wrote the Peninsula novels, I went to the local police and uh, I think the police often feel maligned. So they they like it if someone shows a a serious interest in what they're doing. So um, the the police at at the Hastings Police Station, uh, there's a big uniform branch. Uh, It was also a training police station, so there were police cadets there. 
there was you know small civilian staff and a little a little CIB uh, it's called CIU now I think of four detectives so I I got a glimpse from from that but uh, a lot of stuff I make up and probably I hope I don't get it wrong but oh and newspapers I've I've been collecting newspaper clippings for years and years and years that tell me something about police culture. Uh, the bullying culture, the treatment of female uh, cops, um, corruption, whatever it might be, not because I want to stick the boot into the cops, but it gives me a sense of ordinary, fallible human beings and how that fallibility might show itself in a, in a police force. Have you ever had any feedback from the, the police in the Mornington Peninsula? Do they, do they uh, read your books? I don't know if they do, but I've, I've had a couple of cops over the years say that they, they like they like the books. I'm not sure about the Peninsula Cops, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the question is about cold, bright lights and the character of Alan All and whether he, um, and the fact that he transgressed, he, he crossed over and um, presented a, a very much more morally complex character. And would, would you return to Alan? Yeah, okay, good question. Um, very briefly, Alan, Alan All is, and I, again, I got from a newspaper clipping about the Victoria Police attracting back recently retired detectives to work cold cases to free the younger detectives for more active cases. And instantly when I read that article, I could see my main character. He's been in the police force for a very long time, and he's, but he's been retired for five years. He's, he's a bit bored. He doesn't know where he's going with his life. He lives in a complicated situation, a big, big old house in inner Melbourne uh, with his daughter lives in one bedroom. His wife sometimes lives in another bedroom and some other transients come and, come and go. And uh, I instantly saw him in my head when I read that newspaper clipping. So I had my main character there already. Uh, he, it, we see all through the book, you know, it's a police procedural in the sense that he solves some cold cases. Uh, and we see him investigating cold cases. But one of the transients in his house, um, in a little room, a little suite of rooms at the back, is one of those old tumble-down uh, two- or three-storey tenement houses you find in, North Carl in Carlton and North Carlton. He takes in a woman who's fled a... A violent husband with her daughter and is going through um family court case and and alan all is helping her out he, he takes in the waifs and strays if you like and helps them out in their personal lives if he can and this situation for this poor woman gets even worse and he finds himself committing an ultimate step into the dark side yeah I had to ask myself, though, is he like that all the way through when I first started the book? Or, and I decided, no, uh, which meant then the pressure on me as a writer to get the reader to believe that he would take this ultimate step. Mm. So I just tighten the screws, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. Making the reader believe, yeah. And you do that so well 
in your books. I mean, Hirsch is so real to me. I don't know if people who are fans of the Hirsch, the Hirsch, the place, but it's the way in which you render the places real, you know, the observations, the, the people on the beach that we see on the Mornington Peninsula. It's, it's that extraordinary sense of place that you have. Um, this is my last question to you. Are you, when you're writing a crime novel, obviously there is the character, there is the story, but then there is the place. What do you think gives you more pleasure, writing the people or the place? Uh, I think writing the people, yeah. I think, I think characters matter more than plot. But I, I, would, I, would say that, I would say that many new writers, and I used to teach creative writing for many years, uh, many new writers don't pay any attention to the setting that in their books and their stories, their manuscript drafts, the setting is static. And in their heads as creative beings, the setting is static. Okay, two characters are having an argument in a lounge room about the state of their marriage. Okay, I'd better depict the lounge room. Okay, well, the curtains are drawn, the television's off. Uh, uh, that's enough. But to me as a writer, that's never enough that the, the place, it could be a room, it could be even be Hirsch behind the steering wheel of his police hi Hilux, uh, will say something about the character and there's something about character interactions, something about the plot, and will influence them where necessary. So it's, it is, the setting is always vital. Yeah. But I'm probably mainly interested in the interactions of characters. Yeah. Uh, but... I think I've said this before, and I probably said it a year ago with, <laughs> with this session. I was fortunate early in my career. I had a few short stories published and applied for a creative writing scholarship to Stanford University in California, mm -hmm. near San Francisco. And I was fortunate to win this, this scholarship, and I thought I'd, I'd jump in the deep end and give a short story to be workshopped. Uh, and it was a simple short story about a young woman going into a pub seeing her ex-boyfriend across the, the other side of the pub, and it's a very internal story. She decides, no, she's moved on. She's not going to go and see him. So it's a very slow-moving internal story with a subtle shift in the character's perception at the end. It, no, there doesn't have to be a car chase. Uh, and the story got pulled apart by the class. There were 20, uh, no, there were only about 12 in the class. A woman aged in her 60s was the oldest, and a kid from New York aged 19 was the youngest. I was, I suppose, mid-20s then. And a woman in the class whose opinion I trusted, she'd had several short stories published by the New Yorker, which was the pinnacle of achievement if you're a writer in the United States. Well, even outside the United States. I think Frank Morehouse even writes about um, trying to get a story into the New Yorker. Uh, she said, your writing suffers from sensory deprivation. And... <laughs> I was quite crushed and I didn't know what she meant. So I took her to the pub and she said that good writing makes pictures in the head. Uh, and the way to do that is to appeal to the reader's senses. She said, Ev everything is in your head probably, but it's not on the page yet. I don't know what that young woman looks like. I don't, I can't hear the jukebox in the corner. I can't smell the cigarette smoke, the layers of cigarette smoke in the bar. I can't taste the salt on the pretzels, etc." So it was a best, uh, most powerful bit of creative writing advice I'd ever got. So now when I'm describing places and even people, I, 
try to appeal to the reader's senses because I think it brings them into the scene. If they can, if they can hear the sounds, if they can see the light quality, if they can smell what prevailing odors on the wind or whatever, it brings them into it, into the scene. Gary Disher, you have brought us all into your craft and your novels, and we are extraordinarily grateful to you for sharing all that information and that intelligence and all those amazing books that you have written over the years. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this session with author Gary Disher as much as I did in the process of talking to him at the festival. And just in case you're new to our podcast, our Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival is held annually, and we also run events throughout the year. If you'd like to find out more, go to our website, www.badsydney.com, or join our Facebook community or our book club. Stay tuned for the next panel episode with all the usual bad all about crime podcast suspects, and do keep reading and talking crime. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia. You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival.